0: we well, do going to return uh, this Lord's Day to the book of Isaiah and move to Isaiah chapter 44. <clears throat> Isaiah 44 verses 6 through 8 will be our text. These, these words are very similar to others repeated to other places in Isaiah and also the book of Revelation, as we'll uh, mention in a few moments. But for this day, let's uh, hear together... Uh, this wonderful message from our Lord and God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Well, it's a new year, year of our Lord 2023, brand new, like a baby conceived in its mother's womb. Although, uh, I guess we'd have to say it's not exactly brand new because we're already 10, 10 hours into it or so, right? <laughs> uh, how, how did those hours go for you? Probably slept some of them, right? We sleep quite a few of the hours of our lives. Uh, perhaps you worried. Some of those hours away. Maybe, uh, maybe some of those hours were spent in anxious, fretting. I hope not, but that's often the case for some of us. I, I hope that at least some of that time was savored, was enjoyed. That, that you received at least a few moments of those hours as a, as a gift from God. Uh, because that's certainly what our time is. One thing that's certain, no matter how those hours are spent or were spent, they're gone. You, you'll never get them back. Okay, you, you, cannot, you cannot return to the past. Okay. Time travel is the stuff of fables and science fiction, but in reality, it doesn't happen. You will never again have those moments. They're gone. And and neither can you borrow time from the future. Right? It's it's impossible. We're creatures. We're creatures of time. Uh, We can't escape the constraints of time. Uh, That that issue of time got me to thinking about a play that you may be familiar with, the play uh, Drama Our Town by Thornton Wilder. If you're familiar with that, you know that Wilder uh, used as a setting for that drama the nearby town of Peterborough, the fact that they proudly proclaim on their their town sign. That that drama really focuses uh, to a large extent on the human experience of time and, and reflects on... how how people experience time in their everyday lives. The the playwright uh, Wilder really reflects the modernist viewpoint. If you want to see the philosophy of the age, look at its art. And Wilder artfully captured the modernist view of the way we, as human beings, experience time. And, and basically, it boils down, in a, in a nutshell, to, to, well, you've got this one moment, okay, and, and you can never reclaim it. You can't go into the future. And so the best you can hope for, the, the, the most you can hope for in the modernist worldview is to be in the moment, okay to, to experience it as fully as you can. And in the course of that play, uh, that's what Walder presents. The, the only he, he does say something about whether there is eternity and it has something to do with the human being with human beings. He uses almost those exact words in the in the drama. But it's really not clear at all how it connects with with human life. And the the only vision of life after death that Wilder gives in his play is, well, you don't die and stand in front of God as judge. You don't go to heaven or anything like that. You just go up the hill from Peterborough, you know, and you you park yourself in the cemetery. And, and, And life after death is nothing but... But sort of letting go of all those experiences, detaching yourself from the love, from the joy, from the suffering, from the hate, whatever it is, just sort of detaching yourself and well detaching yourself from life as a human being. And you're you're left at the end of the end of the play with really what is very much an existential view of life. And what is meant by that is the only thing you've got is right now. And so you've got to just grab this moment and squeeze out of it everything you can. Because you're not going to have anything else. Now, it's easy to see that that kind of worldview then means, well... Everything's up for grabs, right? You know, if you as an individual you just have this moment and that's it, and and, and there's no eventual accounting, there's there's no no God who's going to hold you accountable, there's no rewards, no punishment, then I well, do whatever you want, right? In fact, you turn inward. Don't you? You turn into self and start thinking about how to gratify yourself, how to fulfill yourself, how to build your self-esteem, how to find self-fulfillment. And doesn't that characterize our culture? It's all about self. And it's really hopeless, isn't it? is an utterly hopeless view of life. You might want to think about that a little bit when you're interacting with people outside the church. There is underneath virtually every human being, except those who have totally numbed themselves by some means or the other, There is what Henry Thoreau called a quiet desperation. Quiet desperation. No fixed place to stand for the average human being in our culture. No hope, no future. And so that explains our culture's obsession with entertainment and with consumption. We're no longer producers, we're consumers because we're consuming as much as we can to try to fill up that emptiness within ourselves. Well, the Lord gives us a totally different picture in our text, doesn't he? God Speaks to his people, his erring, wandering people. Isaiah addresses them often as people who've wandered, who've gotten caught up in that self-gratification thing. But he he addresses them with words that ultimately, I think we'll see, are words of encouragement and hope. So, So let's go through these words in Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. And I'd like to first direct our attention to that first initial statement that God gives in our text. I am the first, and I am the last. I am the first, and I am the last. He says the same thing in chapter 41, chapter 48. And we see Jesus echoing these words in the book of Revelation three times. You can track those down as well, where Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. What does it mean for you as a believer to know that God says, I am the first and I am the last? Was wonderful encouragement here. That that you need, so listen to it. I am the first. That means that that you have your origin, your beginning, with God, because everything has its beginning with God. He is the one who was. Perhaps it's coming to your mind that the text for. Where we hear, I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. Okay? God is the one who was before anything. As far back as you can go in creation, before that, God was. God was. And the other way... I am the last, he says. So as far as you could go into the future, God is continuing to be. Do you you catch the, the solid ground that that puts under you to grasp those truths? God is your beginning he is your end he is the stable foundation for his people you don't have to figure out what your life means you don't have to define yourself you're not left as so many in our culture are totally bereft of any direction any any guidance to to try to figure this all out yourself. No, God is the one who's first and last. He has given you a solid basis for your life. He has given you a solid basis for yourself. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. He is exclusive. There is no equal to him. Who is like me he goes on to say, let him proclaim it there's a little bit of, well almost almost sarcasm here who is like me and so he sort of gives this rhetorical question, if there's anybody like me, well let him proclaim it. let him declare, let him set an order before me okay Show me what you can do." that's sort of what he's saying here. I spoke. All that is into existence. I declare and it happens. I speak and it is. I set in an order and it remains stable. Can, it, can anybody else do that? Let them do it before me. Of course, the answer is no, they can't. And so, because God is the one who made all, then he is the one who declares what is to come and what will happen there in verse 7. He is sovereign over all. Sovereign over all. Now, the real Achilles heel for modernism, for the culture of modernism, is that while they want to gladly affirm that they can do whatever they want, okay, there, there's there's no final judgment, there's, there's no God, and so there's no accounting. So, in effect, it doesn't matter what you do. It's up to you. But the Achilles heel, or the other side of the coin to that, is if If it doesn't matter what you do, then you don't matter. There's absolutely no significance to you. And again, that's part of what feeds that quiet desperation that so many people feel. Now, if there's a God, of course, and if he is the first and the last, if he is sovereign then it does matter what you do, doesn't it? It matters a great deal. In fact, it matters more than you can imagine. It matters for eternity then, doesn't it? Because God is for eternal. God is for eternity. So if there is a God, then it matters eternally what you do. And, of course, that's the bad news of the gospel, isn't it? Because we look at our lives and we see the sin there. We see our failure to measure up before God. And so we echo the the words of Scripture, there's none righteous, no, not one. We're not a righteous people. But the gospel says there's a second part, doesn't it? There is, in a sense, that bad news that you're accountable. You are completely accountable for everything you say, everything you do, everything you think. But at the same time, the gospel says that God has intervened on your behalf. And we see that right in the beginning of our text, doesn't it? don't we? Because who is it that's speaking here? The Lord that that's in all capitals in your translation probably, or it says Jehovah. that means that's the covenant name for God for he is a covenant making God, in other words, he is a promise making God. and so he's identifying himself as the Covenant God of his people, the king of his people, see that there, king of Israel, the king of his people, and his redeemer. Those two always go hand in hand, don't they? God is your king, he is your redeemer. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And so he has intervened in human history. We see that in the next verse, in verse 7. Since I appointed an ancient people. He's saying since even before time, I appointed a people for myself. Isn't Isn't that a wonderful truth? Before time began, Before creation, God had purposed to make a people for himself. And if you've been united with Christ by faith, you are part of that people. And so you're his witnesses. See that in verse 8? Fear not, nor be afraid the one who is in Christ does not have to live a life of desperation. We don't have to live in endless anxiety and fear because we have a Redeemer. We have a God who has loved us and called us to himself. The God, the only God, the one God has set his affection upon his people and redeemed them. And so we echo Isaiah's words here, don't we? Is there a God besides me? Is there a God besides the true God? There is no rock. It's interesting that he suddenly makes that switch, isn't it? The King James translators were a little thrown by that. I mean, it clearly says rock in Hebrew, but it's... that they translated it God well of course it's talking about God but, but I think they, they were sort of thrown by that, that word rock but we shouldn't be, really be surprised by it uh, Moses loved that name for God look at his final sermon at the end of Deuteronomy and over and over again he, he calls God his rock the rock of his people uh, the rock who gave you birth uh, Expressions like that. Uh, God is the rock. And, of course, that, that immediately brings to our mind a, a stability, a foundation, doesn't it? We think about Jesus' words. The, the one who hears my words and obeys them doesn't just hear them, doesn't just show up at church and listen and then go and do his own thing. The one who hears my word and obeys it His life is like a house built on a rock. So we think about that stability, that foundation. You as God's people have a foundation that no one else has. Those outside of Christ don't have it. their, Their lives are built on sand. And they will collapse in the end. But you as a child of God can live a life founded upon the rock. I think there's more than that in mind here as well. One of the most dramatic scenes in the book of Exodus is found in Exodus chapter 17. People of Israel have only been out, out of slavery only for a few months. They're already complaining. They're already rebelling. The beginning of chapter 17, they are about... Moses says, they're about to stone me. Now, now, what he's saying by that is, they are about to put me on trial and execute me for a failure to fulfill my role as leader. That, that's what's happening here. It's a rebellion. They're calling for judgment on Moses. Because it's been a couple of days and they haven't had water. They've forgotten all the miracles. They've forgotten that God's twice given them water already on this journey. They're ready to throw it all away. They're rebelling against God. God says to Moses, "Take your staff and go out ahead of the people. Separate yourself from the people. Take some of the elders, but go out ahead." You remember the staff? Remember the rod? What's he done with that rod? What has God done with that rod through Moses? God has judged Egypt with that rod. The rod, the staff, is a symbol of judgment. It's, It's what the judge would hold. Okay, so this is a judgment scene being set up. God says to Moses, take that staff. Take that rod. Take the elders. Go out in front of the people. Someone has suggested that, that anybody who is one of the Israelites. In fact, as my friend Gordon Eugenberger says this in his commentary on this, this passage. Any, anyone who is one of the Israelites and had any inkling, any perceptivity at all, would get scared at that point. <laughs> because the judge is taking the rod. And separating himself from you. And it would be entirely conceivable to you. That he is going to turn around. And raise that rod over you. You rebellious people. And destroy you. For your rebellion. But you know that's not what happened. God sets up a scene of judgment. Moses is there with the rod. And God then says the most incredible thing. He says, I will stand before you on the rock. I will stand before you on the rock, and you will take your staff, your rod, your instrument of judgment, and you will strike the rod, strike the rock. Do you see what's happening there? At the moment when the people should have been destroyed, God intervenes, says, I will take the judgment upon myself. That has to be what's happening here. And we can know that by the way Paul talks about this passage in in the New Testament as well. God is saying, I will take the judgment for my people. Strike me. And when Moses does that, you know what happens, right? The blessing of water flows out in abundance. You can see the connection with the with the Lord's Supper that we're about to observe in a few minutes, can't you? Paul says Jesus was that spiritual rock that was there with the people. That they gained spiritual food and drink from the rock, the rock who was struck for them. When you observe this sacrament that he's commanded you to observe, You are acknowledging that most awesome truth, that God was struck on your behalf, that your sin merited his wrath, and that rather than pouring that wrath upon you, you deserve it. He poured out his wrath on his spotless, righteous son. The son took that blow, laid down his life to bring you into union with himself. Oh, this is a wonderful, wonderful meal that we're about to celebrate, isn't it? This is the food and drink that gives eternal life. not in a physical sense. We're not saying there's something magical happening here. This is just bread and grape juice. But, But Paul does say, remember in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Jesus spiritually fed those people in the wilderness. Yes, they got physical water, but there was something more for those who were believers. They fed spiritually on Christ. And you feed spiritually on Christ through this sacrament. And you testify that he is more than food and drink to you. He is very life itself, eternal life. And you you are strengthened and nourished by his spirit. That's what this sacrament's about. That wonderful union. That God has made through his atoning sacrifice in Jesus Christ. To make us his rock. There is no other rock like this, is there? Sh- show me a religion. Where God suffers on behalf of sinners. This is the divine good news that we celebrate as believers as we begin this new year. This is the foundation that can be under your feet as you go into this, this coming year. That, that you draw your strength from Christ, that you find your guidance in Christ, that you seek to glorify him in all things. And he will be with you to enable you to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the spiritual realities that you've revealed in your word. Th- these these are truths that no human being could have thought up. The, this is good news that is, well, it's such great news that no one could have been audacious enough to think it up. That you, righteous and holy God, our creator, one who is our king and holy, has made a way for us, as sinful people, to come into your presence. No more than that, to be united with you through faith in Jesus Christ, to be one with you in in ways that we can only begin to imagine. Lord, help us to experience that in a, in a deeper way. Give us a faith that's that's growing from day to day, that that knows you better, that trusts you more, that obeys you more fully during this coming year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.